It's Wednesday, so you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. Hey, you can listen to me any day of the week. You can listen online at WRTFM.org, at the A Public Affair podcast, or on the WORT smartphone app. If you like what you hear, click the donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Hello, everybody, and welcome to A Public Affair. It's Wednesday, so that means you've got me. I'm your host, Carousel Barrett, and I am so happy to be back here at WRT. And um, we have an incredibly important and fabulous show lined up today. We are talking about um, the latest sort of race to equity report that just came out. I want to sort of take us back a little bit. On October 3rd in 2013, Wisconsin Council on Children and Families released the Race to Equity Report, a baseline report on the state of racial disparities in Dane County. That report sort of rocked the Dane County community. It forced Madison and Dane County to face the truth, what the Black community always knew, but the white community never acknowledged, that our progressive city was really a progressive city for white individuals, but was actually pushing Black families and Black individuals further behind than the national average. Um, It was really a powerful, important report that came out. And um, I'm reading now from the new report. It, It called the 2013 report a magnitude of racial disparities. It was profound and persistent on many levels. And now on Friday, October 13th, 2023 this past friday the uh and no longer it's it's no longer called the wisconsin council on children and families they are now kids forward as i think they've been kids forward for a while we all know them as kids forward and they have put out a new report to review uh racial equities in dane county joining us today we have two guests to talk about the latest report is Carticia Lawrence. She is the Senior Racial Equity Policy Analyst with Kids Forward. Hi, Carticia. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Carousel. It's great to have you. I'm so excited to talk with you. And of course, we have Will Green, or as we all know, the fabulous Will Green, Executive Director of Mentoring Positives. Hello, Will. How you doing? It's really great to have you. Thank you. Thank you both for all that you do. Um, and um, I sort of want to start with a big picture question. Um, why? Why issue a new report 10 years later? Is this? It feels like it's building off the 10-year anniversary, but it also takes this, this different change and this different perspective. Cartesia, tell us about the thought process behind this. Yeah, Carousel, thank you for pointing out the difference in the report. I'll say that um, the reason why uh, Kids Forward decided to release this report is because um, over the past 10 years, we've learned a whole lot about what it means to be a champion for racial equity in Dane County um, and beyond throughout the state of Wisconsin. Um, But to be quite frank, community members have been asking for it. They have been asking whether or not another report will come out Um, And then last year, Kids Forward decided to bring me onto the team and and really take seriously releasing a report that was a little bit different, like you mentioned, Carousel. Um, It's designed to really unpack how race and class and and sometimes gender, um, Black residents, uh, how they're doing in Dane County. Um, And it applies what we've learned from years of community engagement and conversations um, and work being done by us. Um, And the goal is to sort of detail um, around 40 indicators of, on economic well-being, health, and education, focusing narrowly on those three things to take a root cause approach. So you talked about education, economic well-being, health, that the new uh, Race to Equity, Dane County 2023 report really focuses on that. And I, I know that I've heard already uh, in preparing for today's show, I've heard a handful of conversations and interviews uh, with you, Cartesia, and with uh, the Kids Forward team. And it seems like one of the questions you get asked, the problematic perhaps question, you'll tell me, is everyone asks you sort of how have things changed? And and why is that not exactly the fair question to be asking? 
Yeah, unfortunately, it's not uh, a fair question to be asking because of the way that the report was put together. Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, folks won't be able to look at the, the baseline report and the 10-year report and compare the data um, because it's not an apples for apples to apples comparison, unfortunately. Um, we do focus specifically on economic well-being, health, and education, and you won't necessarily see the youth justice, child welfare, and adult justice chapters in this report, not because we're trying to turn a blind eye to those issues, but we know that if not adequately leveraged, that data can be uh, particularly harmful mm -hmm. to the Black community. Um, so we do that. And then we also, um, you're not really able to compare the data because of different changes in our methodology using five-year uh, American community survey data uh, versus the one-year community uh, American community survey data that you'll see in the baseline report. And it talked about how the report um, took the approach, it referred to it as a root cause approach. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, you know, uh, Kids Floors Bet and, and many folks will say that if you focus on folks' economic well-being, health, and education, you'll really get a, a, a very clear understanding of exactly the issues that, that residents are facing. So uh, we took that approach this time and, and we hope that it, that it lands well. And before we sort of break down, right, there's, I mean, we only have an hour. There's so much we could talk about. I really want to spend time diving deep into the three different areas. But Will, I just wanted to touch base with you on sort of the big picture view. Like, what is your approach and, and thoughts of um, the 2023 racial equity report? Um, you know, uh, just being a part of, you know, this report, I just felt like, Again, like Kartisha said, it's 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 more of um, you know, kind of this um, really not solution, not really what people are thinking. It's really just to you know let people know that there are still disparities that we are dealing with ten years later, mm -hmm. um, and they are still like really bad. <laughs> and so it's just going to give us time to really try to strategize around how to. Um, implement systems, because I think that's going to be one of the biggest things that help us through this process is what system changes can we make around these two reports that's out um, with the data that's out about these two reports. So I look forward to being a part of that. Um, I think we've always been that way, uh, being that I work directly with youth in our community. Um, the youth is one of our precious resources, I think, and we have to make sure that we put in time and effort into that um, to make the change. So, um, so yeah, that's how I see the overall yeah. picture of it. Something that was, I want to get your thoughts on this, something that was in the back of my mind as I was reading this report was how it feels like Madison and Dane County are at this, this, this sort of this sort of like sort of teenager stage where we're about to become this bigger city. We're about to grow, about to get more housing, all these things that we're desperate for. And it seems like now is the time to make sure that racial equity is infused in all of the policies that are about to take place that will take us, you know, Dane County feels like we're in this crisis. There's not enough housing. There's not enough jobs. There's not enough, all these things. And I maybe have a naive dream that five or 10 years from now, we'll be over that hump and into sort of this big city space that we're not in right now and how important it is to make sure we have these conversations now so that this is part of the foundation. I don't know if, if that was anything anyone, uh, anyone at Kids Forward or either of you sort of think about. Yeah, I mean, Dane County is growing rapidly, you know, in comparison to Wisconsin, which is shrinking as a state. Yeah. Um, Dane County is one of those counties that actually is growing, right? We see um, some outward expansion. We see, you know, folks moving out of the Madison area and into some prairie and into Fitchburg, Middleton, et cetera. Um, so it's really, really important that this conversation around how do we address the racial disparities that we're already seeing now so that 10 years 20 years from now, we, we don't necessarily see the, see these things. And I also want to point out a really important thing that I'm, I'm realizing as I'm, I'm looking at the conversations that have been had is that folks are seeing this as a Madison issue. I mean, we, we very specifically wanted to, to write a, another report on Dane County because it's not a Madison issue on some prairie 
you know, is 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 also a part of this. Fitchburg is a part of this, et cetera. So we we wanted to have this conversation now so that, you know, in the next generations where we'll we'll likely see differences, um, that this conversation um was actually impactful. Let's let's start breaking it down then. I want to start with economics. Um it it starts with what you think is good news. Black medium income grow is increasing. Black unemployment is decreasing. These are, in general, good things. But then when you compare it to the fact that even though the median income is going up, everybody's medium income was going up. Everyone's unemployment rate was um, decreasing. And it didn't keep up at all Black households with white households. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, Black residents are often the first and the hardest hit during times of economic turmoil. We saw this in the Great Recession, and more recently, we're going to continue to see it um, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And Black residents are usually the last to recover from it. So the improvements that we're seeing, right, like the the increase in the median income, about $10,000 falling unemployment, are really a result of Black residents finally um, beginning to recover from the Great Recession. Um, but a, a thing that you mentioned, Carousel, that I thought is, it was so important to highlight is that everybody's income is increasing. Employment is going down for everyone, um, but not to the same extent, right? Black residents are, are slowly getting to the place um, that white residents had already been, you know, 10, 20 years prior. So it's really important for us to, to, to hone in on that point, right? That like, Black residents are, are constantly lagging behind um, in terms of economic well-being, unfortunately. And it also seems like, right, if they're sort of at the end of the stick, even though they're experiencing success at this moment, when the tide turns and the economic tide turns, they're the f- Black communities and Black workers are the first to be, you know, let go. Yeah. Oh, I've heard it referred to as last hired and first fired. Mm -hmm. So how do you hope to address that? Well, there's a few things that can happen to address this. And really, it's about putting um, policies and systems in place to avoid um, the the reactions to to times of poor economic uh, well-being for everyone. I think one big thing is that... um, Black residents in Dane County need to be somewhat making a living wage. You know, it's really, really expensive to live in Dane County. Um, according to the MIT living wage calculator, um, it's going to take about $37 an hour for a family with one earner and one child to be able to, to be self-sufficient, right? So employers need to agree and work towards paying their employees um, a living wage. Um, there needs to be uh, efforts to address housing unaffordability. Um, it's really, really expensive to to live in Dane County over the over the past few years. I remember, you know, when I was a student on, on UW Madison's campus, I was renting a studio for about six fifty. You know, you can't find anything for yeah. that for that cost these days. It's double that. We're seeing that um, home ownership is becoming increasingly out of reach. For black residents, um, housing costs over the past few years have gone up about hundred thousand dollars. How can we see um, black residents as homeowners or becoming homeowners when their income has only increased about ten thousand dollars at the median, right? So addressing housing affordability is going to be important. Um, I think it, it, it's important for for Madison to continue to support its guaranteed basic income pilot program to be able to support the needs of of low and moderate income families. Um, there's so many things at the local level and at the state level: tax credits, child tax credits, um, addressing the earned income tax credits, so folks um, who don't have children are able to claim it. I mean, there's so many things that um, that we recommend in the report. Well, I don't know if there are other things um, that you think are important. Um, I think, you know, just to go back just a little bit, Carousel, because I think, as you are saying, like, Madison, Dane County, you know, we're growing. And so I think it's important to put a lens on how we are growing and keeping that equity at the center of that and thinking about solutions within that 
as we grow, right? Because we're going to deal with issues and problems if we don't think about that. Say, for instance, like a Darbo Worthington neighborhood, like our nine low income neighborhoods in our city. If we don't think about how to invest in those neighborhoods and give those neighborhoods the amenities they need, people are not going to be able to become part of community, right? And so I'll give you an example. It's like, People are leaving Madison and going out to Sun Prairie, going out to Cottage Grove, going out. When we have families that's low income move to these spaces, now you hear people in the school talking about the issues and the problems that they're having in those schools, right? So if you didn't plan for that growth in your space, right, like have resources in place, you're going to deal with the same issues that we're talking about in this report. So I think it's important that we think about the equity and equality within the expansion and how we do that, but we'll we'll continue to have those problems. Um, and then, you know, I, I I guess just you know thinking about because income is one of the the basic drivers, right? Like it really is. And so, to even imagine that thirty seven dollars an hour is where we need to get people to for a living wage, you know, we got a lot of work to do because. A lot of times that is another trigger that we're dealing with, with families not being able to support their families, which they go and work two or three jobs that really lacks or takes away from the family stability that that needs that needs to happen. So we don't have like shootings in our community that we just recently had um, because families are not able to spend the quality time that they feel they need. They got to think about going to a job or or putting the time and energy in my family. So those are things that I think about. I like the idea of breaking that all down. You know, when people think of economics, they think, okay, how much do you get paid out at your job? And can you afford housing? Which obviously we've talked a little bit about housing and, and the crisis that that is right now. But economics is so much more than that. Um, can we expand a little bit on what are some of the economic the, the cost when people don't have enough money to fund their basic needs is not just housing, but then it's also childcare. It's also the definition of basic needs has really expanded in society. Now everyone needs a cell phone. Everyone needs internet. Of course, many, many people don't have that. And how do you get a job if you don't have access to a computer, if you don't have access to cell phone? How do you you know, stay connected education-wise if you don't have access to these things. My my children who are in Madison Public Schools, and of course, we're a wealthy white family, you know, like the average Madison family, you know, at the medium income. And we have a printer in our house. We have two printers in our house. If my daughter loses her computer, I have an extra laptop. I and mean, all these things that we take for granted that have sort of become the fundamentals of succeeding in society that are the the bigger impact when you don't have um, financial success because of the challenges in the uh, workplace. Yeah, I mean, I think one major thing that you brought up that Kids Forward is, you know, so passionate about is childcare. Mm -hmm. You know, really thinking about how wildly unaffordable childcare is um, for most families. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about um, the figure in the report that that mentions that um, infant care is about eighteen thousand dollars a year on average um, in Dane County. Who can afford this? You know, uh, early care and education is considered affordable when it costs about seven percent of your income. Um, Black families making the median income. Um, that would be about 48% of their income if they were able to send their children to, to daycare. White families, on the other hand, 22%, still higher, right? So childcare is an issue that affects all of us, but it disproportionately uh, affects Black residents when they can't afford it because you need someone to care for your children while you are, you know, going to work. Um, and on the other hand, Child care providers, you know, wages are really, really low in the child care field because they're often not on par with what families can afford to pay. So we're going to see on the back end that child care centers are closing, especially those family child care providers who disproportionately serve Black children. So when we're thinking about all of the resources that it takes to be economically well, we can't forget to talk about child care and ask for investments in programs like Child Care Counts or 
creating shared services networks um, to support family child care providers. Well, we've had conversations on the show about um, the crisis in child care and how it's not just an issue of, you know, basic child care so that a family and an individual can go out to work, but also quality child care. You know, child care is not just babysitting. It is challenging and uh, ed- educational and all of these things that people get degrees in them for a reason. This isn't just someone that it's more than just loving someone and watching someone, right? And when you don't have access to quality childcare, not only do you lose out because you can't access a job and you can't, you know, get all, get the economics uh, and the salary that you need, but you also are leaving your child behind because they don't have access to quality education and childcare. Um, Will, do you see sort of that that struggle of when families don't have access to childcare, the impact not just on the families, but also on the youth? Um, I think so. Just, you know, when I think about it, I think, you know, when those kind of systems, you know, fall out of place, like childcare not being able to afford that, now you have siblings watching little kids. Yeah. And then it just... It, it just can a continual like cycle of now the older kids missing out on their life being way more adult than they should be at that age and thinking about things that they shouldn't be thinking about. And, and they just basically become the adult in the house um, with the parents. Right. So you just don't want that because a lot of times when I'm working with kids and they they may be having negative behaviors, it's it's because they want to grow up too fast, right? Like they, they want these like, uh, re- they want these like freedoms that they think an adult has, but <laughs> we all as adults want to be kids, but, you know, we want to take it back. So what I'm really saying is that, you know, it, it, it really, it's it, because it's such a developmental time with childcare, like you said, if it's not quality childcare, you know, people's kids come home with bad behaviors. Um, if it's not good quality childcare, um, so you know, if we're missing out on that, we're really missing out on the fundamental foundation of how strong our kids are going to be in the community. And childcare is definitely um, something that is very important. I, I just met with Dr. Um, Jack Daniels from Madison College, and he was even talking about how um, just how difficult it is to get childcare in our community, and raising monies for that, and and a capital um, for a building to have something like that happen. So I know it's important, and a lot of families need it, but it's just unaffordable with some of the living wages that some of the people are living off right now. Well, I appreciate you talking about the impact that it has on the other siblings in the household. I don't think that's something that, you know, I hear us talking about very often is that it forces kids to have adult roles, but kids aren't adults. I mean, I don't think I'm, I've had so many parenting failures as someone with, right, I have a graduate degree. That doesn't matter. Parenting is hard as heck. And adults struggle at it. The thought that, you know, it would be impossible for any, any child to be successful at it. And the pressures that it has on the family. Um, the entire family. Okay, so I, I would love to build on something that Will talked about, um, which is like, us putting children in adult roles. Um, In in the education chapter, we begin a conversation on adultification and how we see that impacting kids within schools. But I love the the connection between um, this phenomena, right, where we see Black children as older, stronger, more capable, uh, but they're still children. And we see this impacting them in school because teachers see them as adults, right? They come to school, they're, you know, they might be dressed like what you might consider adult to be dressed like. They might, you know, have some language that we see adults um, using, but they're still children. Um, and unfortunately, that's leading to, to the issues that Will mentioned um, in school, right? Them being pushed out of the classroom because, um, 
there being like relationship dynamics with their teachers. Uh, we're seeing their behavior sort of begin to become criminalized. And it's all because we are seeing black children as adults. And even though they might wanna be adults, they might look or act like adults in your opinion, but they're still children. Don, let's, let's transition a little bit to the education piece of that. Um, and I really appreciate you sort of starting that conversation of the contradiction of, you know, we're, we're treating youth as adults and then we're over, over expecting them to be something that they can't be criminalizing them, punishing them in our schools when they don't have, you know, sort of the, you know, typical relationship that white teachers and white families are used to having. What does it look like in our schools? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there, the first sort of issue is that we have around 10% of the students um, in Dane County's um, public school systems um, in, in schools. And then we have about 4% of the staff are, are black, right? Mm -hmm. So we already have this mismatch between teacher and student um, so that black students are not walking through the, the, the halls and, and, and in their classrooms seeing their teachers. So there's already that issue. And then we have differences in culture and differences in language and differences in the way that things are happening so that many of these teachers just simply don't understand black students. They don't really understand what they're going through. And so we they are resulting to more punitive measures to to sort of get control of the classrooms. And I, you know, I'm a former teacher, so I know exactly how how this has happened, right? We're just trying to do our best. You know, we're trying to teach our lesson, we're trying to make it through the day. And unfortunately, we have students who are, uh, are coming in and you might not understand them. So we're seeing um, black students being suspended from school around 10 times um, more than their white counterparts for many years. This has been a persistent issue. Um, having talked with some um, school administrators, I talked to Kyrie Brooks out of um, Sun Prairie. He's an assistant principal and he talked about um, the fact that their school is moving towards more restorative justice and social emotional learning practices and how not only has that made an impact um, in their discipline, right? Because we know that discipline is a result of adult <laughs> responses to children, not necessarily what might be happening in schools, but when, when they're implementing these restorative justice practices, they're finding that teachers are beginning to build more relationships with students, that the school environment is just better, that kids are feeling like they belong a little bit more. Um, so I think that's how it's it's showing up in schools. Are we seeing a change in that and the sort of criminalization of otherwise sort of normal youth behavior? You know, youth, I can't imagine anybody. I went to a public high school and there were fights all the time. That, that just happens when you have school with kids and people push each other and people bully each other and people pick on each other and schools dealt with that by trying to, you know, pull kids aside, have conversations. Oh, this is not brand new information. And yet now when we add police officers to the school environment, they're criminalizing, which is otherwise normal and typical youth behavior. And instead of it being a learning opportunity or a, an opportunity to sort of realize, wow, I did get upset at that. What am I going to do about it? All of a sudden they find themselves criminalized and faced with the threat of, you know, a, a, a criminal charge against them for the same activity that's been happening for decades and, you know, centuries um, in, in schools. I mean, I'm going to say a few things and then I'll let Will talk about that because I know he probably has some some really um, some really good experiences with that. But I'll, I'll say that in Wisconsin, this is an extremely important conversation, this conversation around cops in schools, because we are one of three states. Only, you know, two other states are automatically processing 17 roles as adults. So we have to add that to the conversation. Right. Because. If we're pushing forward, you know, having cops in schools, I know it's a big thing in Milwaukee, we have to understand that we are putting cops in a place to be able to change the course of a child's life, right? To be able to process them as an adult automatically. Um, it's really important for us to address this issue and for us to remove cops from schools and to implement more restorative justice practices so that we do not automatically criminalize our students. And I'll, I'll pass it to Will. <laughs> 
Um, you know, um, that issue, when I think about the school's education, which is a big thing, I think, <clears throat> I think our, I think our school district, one, has a, has a tough job, right? Any principal, any leader within that system have a tough job because you have staff turnover. And I think that's one of the mechanisms that would help us not move forward with, 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 with how we, implement our, you know, behavioral plans in school, right? Because you have someone that was on the right path and then you get a new staff in, they got a new way. And so that kind of system is broke and that's how kids make it, um, you know, it, it, it's such a relationship building um, thing that we do in the community and the work that we do. And teachers oftentimes, teachers or administrators, people in buildings like that don't get a lot of time to build the true relationship that needs to be built with kids in that in that arena. So um, we got work to do on that. So I think we need a I think we need to retouch on our model of how we teach kids. I think we need to get more to like life skills. I think we need to get more of like cooking and doing those things that could really um, doing a checkbook or, you know, probably ain't there anymore. But those types of things that can move a kid in their life because it's more interesting right that's that's the path they want to be on so we got to capture them the hook is the key you got to capture them and get them to a place where they want to learn and implement these things that they think is going to happen in their life at the time so that's you know that's what i really feel like you know we have to put some kind of system in place to help people that's coming into the building tra get trained in a way that understand what they're getting into. Cause we probably got a lot of young teachers right now in our school system. And I just know what it takes for you to be a really strong educator, but a really loving educator. So it's, it's a hard job to be that hard, but that soft and get a good mix. And um, that could be tough in the school, in, in school right now. So. We're talking right now with Cardicia Lawrence um, from Kids Forward and Will Green from Mentoring Positives about the recent Kids Forward Race to Equity report for 2023. If you want to join the conversation, we would love to hear from you. You can give us a call at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. Jade and Jay are in the studio. They are ready for your calls. Um, maybe you have some thoughts about um, do you remember the Kids to Equity report when it came out 10 years ago in 2013? And what do you think about the things we're talking about now? Um, education, economic, well-being, and we're going to touch on health in just a moment. But would love to hear your questions or comments, again, at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. Um, I want to... The Race to Equity report um, has a lot of numbers. It has this great sort of narrative, everything that we're talking about, but it also has a lot of numbers. Um, I hope everyone gets a chance to read it. We'll we'll post a link on where you can find it on the WRT page, but of course you can go to Kids Forward and find the report there. And um, one of the numbers that stood out to me, there's so many, but one that I found was, uh, in the education realm that was really, I felt telling was the fact that when you looked at eighth grade math proficiency and fourth grade reading, these are tests that are done across the state. I'm not necessarily condoning these tests or saying that they're the right way to measure. But even if you don't agree with the test, I think the numbers that you had were really interesting in that in Dane County, whites do better than the than their peers across the state. Dane County is a great place to be if you're a white student. You do better than anywhere else in other, not anywhere else, but other places than the other, other school districts in Wisconsin, in Dane County. But if you're a black student, our numbers are actually lower than the Wisconsin average. So it's not that black students are actually um, not doing well in Dane County, which is true, but it's actually even worse. They're doing worse in Dane County than they would in the rest of Wisconsin, that our schools are really going in the wrong direction for Black youth. What do you think of those numbers? Cool. I mean, that's, that's really hard to hear, you know, um, especially in the most educated county in the county, right? That 
even in that place that student black students are still not necessarily meeting the proficiency standards. I think I want to tie it back to to this conversation about relationships that we had earlier, right? So student academic success um, has been shown to be highly connected to their relationships with teachers in the school environment. So um, when we look at when we also look at the data that shows that black and white students are increasingly experiencing school differently, it begins to make sense, right? So per perceptions of fairness and safety and belonging have gone down for black students, but they've increased for white students. So on top of the fact that standardized tests are, you know, messed up, you know, yes. not good, you know, tools of eugenics. Um, Ibram X. Kendi has flat out called them, them racist. Um, they weren't necessarily designed to do well on those tests. Um, and, and so they don't, but it, there's something there, right, about students um, in Dane County doing worse than in the state. Like what right. is going on? Right. I would say it has something to do with this, this conversation about relationships. Um, but what would you say, Will? Um, again, I think, you know, that's a main, one of the main ingredients. Um, I, you know, I just vividly think when I first got to Madison, I was an SEA over at um, Lindbergh Elementary. And um, I was there and I know I was dealing with kids that behaviorally was getting in trouble at school. But when I went to their classroom to support in the classroom and whenever they said they couldn't do work, right? Like if I was there cheerleading them on, they could do the work. So it was just a matter of giving them that boost of they can do it. And so I, I truly believe that's really one of the, the key instances. And again, I think, um, you know, thinking about those numbers, again, we all, we all know it's a system, right? Because last time I read, kids are going to prison off their third, fourth grade reading levels. Right. So if they're not proficient at that time, they potentially could end up in prison, right? And so these systems are in place. And a lot of this stuff, not in the new report, but I know that people that look like me, a place like juvenile corrections or prison is a place that is a money maker, right? It's on, it's on, it's on the market, right? Like these are places, this is modern day, uh, modern day slavery to a point, right? When you, mm -hmm. when you house people in that way. So, you know, what is it? I think, again, we are disengaged with our youth. Um, we got to get back in tune with our youth. Um, I think our youth are looking for um, different ways how to um, earn money in, in this community. Um, so if they want to be entrepreneurs or different ways that they could they can make an income, we have to entertain those avenues and maybe think about the way that we structure our school days and how we deliver education to our kids, because I think we're losing them. And I don't know if COVID has really, has really been, um, I don't know if we really getting the true repercussions of COVID from our kids, yeah. because it can't really be expressed. Um, but it's there, I think, a lot of kids are feeling this, I need to be out, I need to be free. You know what I mean? Um, it's just a lot going on that I don't think has really been able to come out um, in a therapy session. And, you know, because that's what you need. You need to release. You need to get this stuff off your chest. And I think our kids are dealing with a lot of that pressure, along with peer pressure, trying to like, if you're behind, you know, a lot of our kids, if they're behind in third and fourth grade already, what in the world do we expect them to go and learn in right. ninth grade and try to catch up to the building blocks that they lost already? You know how frustrating that may be? So it just comes out in a whole nother like ball of fire that we're not ready for. Um, so we, we just need to get back in tune with our, with our students. Well, and I really like how throughout the report, how everything relates to each other. Education relates to economics, relates to healthcare, and, and all the way back again. And when I was thinking about education and my day job, I'm a tenant rights attorney and I work on a lot of housing issues and um, working to prevent evictions. And I know so many of the conversations I have with my clients are, I need to keep my housing or I need to keep living in this neighborhood because 
then my kids are going to have to switch schools and change curriculums and change friends. And not just even the education of it, the, the social aspect of it, changing schools, changing environments, being housing unstable, living in, you know, your car, being homeless or all these things where economics has such a huge impact on kids being able to be successful in school when there's so many other burdens that they bring with them when they enter the school building, learning and doing their homework is the last on their list when they're not meeting their basic needs because of housing instability and economic challenges. Yeah, there's a figure in the report that compares um, Black students to white students who had to move um, schools, yeah. change schools due to um, due to housing. Um, and I think it was 20% of, of black students had to change schools due to a move and then 4% for white students. So this connection between housing instability and education is, is there's a clear linkage there, right? Students might also be struggling with the fact that they are having to, to change environments, change friends, live in a different place, right? So we have to address economic well-being if we want to see changes in education outcomes. I want to pick up on something, Will, you said, and in, in sort of now pivot to health outcomes, which was um, the third factor that um, the race to equity report for 2023 addressed. Um, and that was mental health and the levels of anxiety. I feel like this isn't talked about enough in the white community, in the greater community, the levels of anxiety and impact of racism and poverty um, because of racism that just affects your mental well-being on a daily basis, even if everything else were the same, the challenges that you have to face every day, and yet we expect people to perform just as well as anyone else, even though they have all these understandable anxieties and depressions and mental health impact from society racism. Where are you seeing that? And are you seeing that we can even tie that specifically to youth or even broader? Yeah, I mean, so we've seen in the report that Black youth mental health diagnoses for anxiety and depression have tripled since 2017, 2018, and that's pre-pandemic. <laughs> so, you know, that that doesn't even include the rates for after the pandemic where, you know, students are dealing with loss, you know, and all kinds of grief that went along with the, the many uh, tragedies that happened um, in the pandemic. Um it's, it's really tough to live in an environment where you have to deal with this dual reality, right? Like, you know, that you personally have to deal with all these stresses and all of, you know, economic insecurity, housing insecurity, et cetera. And then to go to school and see students not having to deal with the same things you're dealing with. It's like, it's kind of mind blowing. I imagine as a child, you know, me growing up, realizing I, I grew up on the north side of Milwaukee and you could drive 15 minutes up the street and be in a totally different place where students have all of these resources and, and are, you know, living in communities that aren't run over, you know, by different different challenges and wondering like, why, why me? You know, why can't I have the same things that other people have? And, and that affects your, your mental well-being. You know, it affects your confidence. It affects, you know, who you um, aspire to be and who you think you can be in the future. Um, so I think that's how it affects youth for sure. Um, well, I don't know if you want to jump in there. You know, all I would say is, you know, studying psychology, you know, we, we have all these external factors that you deal with and that you were alluding to and talking about. And so, again, like you said, if you got a kid that's in a household with six adults, music blaring, cards playing, not eating right, all these, all these things, um, that can wear on you. And as a kid, it's really hard because you are really looking for acceptance in what you are trying to do and be involved, whether it's through sports, um, different clubs or whatever, you are trying to connect. And sometimes our kids can be really hard on each other um, and not really maybe intentional, unintentional, but we can be really hard and kids can be hard on themselves. Like positive thinking, self-positive talk is is needed in this world and because you have to always elevate yourself to be taking yourself to this to this place um and on top of that in the black community it's like taboo right like i 
I know that there's a market for African-American therapists where people can, you know, we can talk to, but a lot of times black people think that's taboo or something is wrong with me. I, I, I can't do therapy. So they don't want to touch it. Um, but it's one of the things that we really could increase in this community. And it may be a new way to do it. I worked with Dr. Steve Stein from North Star um, Counseling when he worked with kids. And it may come in counseling, well, you don't meet on a couch no more. It, it, you know, you may meet in the community. You may, it may be a different form on how we need to, you know, help kids get through some of this because suicide rates are up. Um, and like, like you say, a lot of kids are dealing with grief and they probably don't even know how to deal with it. And it comes in so many different forms. Uh, we just need to be a little bit more in tune. And, and I feel like just recently in our community, um, a lot of our life is sped up um, through the technology and things that's coming down the pike, um, like AI and things like that. So if you think about it, I don't know how old y'all are, but, you know, we had like a couple of few TV channels when I was growing up. Yeah. So now you see all these changes that we are just like, oh, wow, wow. It's the advancement. We don't even like we don't even have time to discuss it. Right. Like, whoa, like AI came through. It's like it's just all coming through so fast that we don't even have the time to like debrief it and kind of like make a plan for like getting ready for these things. So. Um, our life has sped up and we got to we got to we got to figure out how to slow back down and, and still continue to have those technologies, but still get back to like building that relationship and being seen. And I'll tell you why, because I just started a program with some kids coming in the program and when they came for the first day of training. I really gave them a really good, like hard, like <clears throat> I like you. And the next day they came back. The young black man came through, the young black kid came through and he looked for, I might have, a lot of people may have missed that, but he did not allow me to go past them. I was just about to say, hey guys, and let him go through, but he reached back to grab my hand to look for that shake. And I couldn't believe it in that moment in my 52 years, I was like, he really is looking for that handshake that I gave him and that kind of like interaction that I gave him. And we just can't miss those moments because we're dealing with humanoids. And I think that's the most precious thing. Like. You, you have to always be feeding positives um, to to decrease um, some of these mental um, things that we deal with in our community. Well, and with all the challenges, you're missing the human connection and the one-on-one -on -one connection because you're busy struggling with meeting your basic needs. It, like you said, quality of life and establishing these connections that, that help you have the foundation for a, a healthy life and healthy problem solving, but you don't have time to yeah. focus on that when you have to get your third job so that you don't become homeless so that you have food on the table, et cetera, et cetera. And these are absolutely related to the racism and inequity that is in our society. Um, I know we're nearing the end, but Kardisha, I wanted to ask you a question specifically about gender. The, the um, report talks about racial injustice, but it also talks about Black women and the challenges that they face. And th that's in so many ways, I don't want to make it only on one thing. But one thing in particular that is the easiest to, to point out is uh, maternal health, uh, post and prepartum. Can you talk to us about that? Absolutely. Thank you so much for for bringing that up. Um, yeah, Black women are more likely to have, uh, to receive late or no prenatal care. Um, they're more likely to have babies who are low birth weight. They're more likely to have babies um, born prematurely. Um, and then they're also more likely to give birth to babies who die within their first year of life. Um, and then on the back end, a, a figure that we couldn't put in the report because we didn't have that county level data um, is that they're also more likely to die um, during childbirth and, and after. So uh, Black women are, are, as you mentioned, just working really hard, this grind and hustle culture, just trying to provide, you know, trying to show up for themselves and their children daily and oftentimes are not given the resources to be able to care for themselves. One of the recommendations that we have in the chapter is that uh, Medicaid begin to reimburse doulas for the care that they um, for the care that they receive. Um, and, and doulas are extremely important to providing both prenatal and postpartum care. 
um, avoiding those costly hospital medical interventions like C-sections that are really hard to recover from, but also just pr overall providing advocacy. Um, and I, I spoke with um, with a few doulas um, at mentor, um, sorry, the Harambe Village doulas who talked specifically about um, their work with uh, Black women and breastfeeding, um, mm -hmm. which is you know, known to increase the bond between mother and baby and um, lead to a little bit of weight loss after after birth. Um, so providing those resources to, to mothers um, and particularly black mothers can be life changing and life saving um, and, and are really important. It's also really important that we, we move towards a 12 month postpartum uh, health care through Medicare, Medicaid, um, so that mothers can receive care for themselves and their babies after they're born. And Wisconsin is one of the only states in America that hasn't sort of accepted um, Medicaid expansion. And the people left behind are Black women, Black families. Yeah, it, it's okay. pretty. I feel like that's not part of the conversation. It, it is saying how, oh, we're leaving poor families behind. And I appreciate that they want to bring everyone in, but they're ignoring the fact that this is a racial justice conversation as well. Yeah, I mean, like, it, and this, it, it is a racial justice conversation because it disproportionately impacts um, Black women, but it also impacts um, the rural community who are seeing hospital closures because mm -hmm. of the decision to not expand Medicaid is causing um, those hospitals to not be able to be reimbursed for the services that they're providing. So uh, I think the, the overarching um, issue here with, with this question about uh, the expansion of, of health insurance is that when we don't expand Medicaid, all of us are impacted, rural, rural communities, um, especially, but Black women are disproportionately more affected um, and, and are leading to poor health outcomes for, for mothers and families. So uh, again, I knew we wouldn't be able to get to everything. I have lists and lists of questions, so much more I want to talk with you about, but it's so wonderful to have you both here and to just, you know, begin the conversation that we need to be having in our final minutes moment here, if uh, 30 seconds for both of you, what are next steps that our listeners can do what to, to keep thinking about this and how can they help, you know, be part of the solution instead of the problem? I think for me, just recognizing that this isn't a Madison issue only, right? This is an issue for the entire county um, and Dane County. And in fact, at 6 p.m. today, um, there is a um, there is an event, right, where folks can go out and advocate for the Dane County budget. Uh, we encourage yeah. you to use the report to go out and advocate for investments in your community um, and to really express what's important to you. So please do that. Fantastic. Thank you, Kartisha. Will, yeah. final thoughts? Yeah. I would just say, you know, um, think about our neighborhoods, think about the, you know, with, with all the areas we talked about, education, um, income, um, you know, all those disparities. Think about our neighborhoods, because those are the places that our kids and families are living in. And if we could build those spaces up and give the resources and amenities that we give all other people in this community, I think we'll, we'll start out in a, in a good in a good way to to make this city that's less than 300,000 a healthy city for everyone. Well, it's been fabulous talking with you again. Will Green, Executive Director of Mentoring Positives, and Karticia Lawrence, Senior Racial Equity Policy Analyst with Kids Forward. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us today. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for having us. Huge thank you to Jay for engineering and Jade for producing. Thank you, everybody, for listening. You are listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. And we will see you again next week. On the credit card just keeps on compounding. But the FCC can never shut this pirate sound down. I'm indirect with someone never pre-recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded. With information that would never be reported disregard the mainstream media distorted we come and listen to